Well, hello, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's a great privilege to get to speak to you um, this morning. And I've actually done this talk twice, which is really unusual, um, but it gives me an extra feeling of confidence. Um, we have been away, which is crazy, before Christmas. We're never going to do that again. I'm feeling like... Um, I've completed infinity tests, um, and my family have completed infinity tests. We've crossed like four borders. It's crazy we made it back at all. Um, but we actually did make it back. But just in case we didn't make it back and we're in isolation, there's a pre-recorded version of this. It's probably better than this one. But, you know, you get what you get because you came for live. And a special hello to everyone who's on the live stream this morning. Um, it, Having been on the live stream for the last couple of Sundays while we were away and while we were quarantining, it's just a great reminder that um, it really is a significant part of how we worship together as church, particularly in these strange times where people can come, people can't come, people get stuck at home, people are re- reasonably anxious about the, the difficulties that our nation is facing. So hello, live streamers. It's great to be with you too. Um, now, Christmas time, like Ian says, an invitation to do something special. And when we last looked at Galatians, which is a letter in the Bible that we've been working through for some time now, we came across a quote from an even more ancient bit of the Bible from the prophecy of Isaiah. And as I was studying that prophecy of Isaiah, as it plugged into Galatians, uh, I really felt like I was beginning to get a handle on the big story of Isaiah, on some of the big themes in Isaiah and how it fits together. And over the past weeks, I've been thinking uh, about how that connects into even the Christmas story. And uh, I want to take you with me now on a bit of a voyage of exploration inside the Christmas story through Isaiah. Now, Isaiah can feel a bit daunting. If you know Bibles and bible stuff, Isaiah is a pretty big chunk of the Bible. It's like 60-some chapters. It's a prophecy. That is, it's something writing down what the Lord is saying to them and their response to that. So it's not just storytelling, like the Christmas narratives, which are kind of easier to get your head around, or letters written to people. It is God kind of speaking to us, but sometimes a little bit harder to get your head around as a result. A bit more of a challenge to understand particularly how that sort of ancient writing applies to us here and today. So... uh, In fact, there is some amazing stuff in it. Isaiah, people love Isaiah. Sometimes it's called the fifth gospel um, because it has so much about the story and the work of Jesus inside of Isaiah. And the bit we're going to look at in particular this morning uh, was originally spoken to the ancient people of Israel. So it's about 500 years um, before Jesus is on the scene. So it's like a pre-Christmas kind of highlights type thing. Um, But as we see, we'll study it together, we'll see that it stretches out beyond the Jewish people that it was originally written to, and it actually has things to say to us too. It tells a wider story and one that includes um, us. So let's read together from Isaiah chapter 51. Uh, We're going to read the first six verses. It's not that much, but there's plenty in there. And uh, if you've got one of the Blue Church Bibles, uh, it's page 739. So Isaiah chapter 51, look for the big 51. And it's page 739, and Hannah is going to be reading for us this morning. Thank you very much, Hannah. Now you have to do the mask on, mask off, tricky maneuver. I'll get out your way. Hold on. Keno's going to get there. Hey, Keno, can we swap mics? Maybe Keno's not here, and that would make it harder. Right, also, Ken's going to swap mics for us. Two seconds. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instructions will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Thanks very much, Hannah. You got one bonus verse there for the observant, verse 6, which is a great verse. So, what is this um, all about? This is a reasonably kind of strange bit of the prophecy, right? Especially read in isolation like that. You're like, what is happening here? What did it mean first to its original audience? Uh, what does it mean then for us here today? Why is this relevant? Well, it is a call to look back. Uh, it's a call to look out. And then it's a call to look forwards. But before we dig in, who is God speaking to here? Well, it said at the beginning, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. That's what verse 1 tells us. So Isaiah is speaking to a faithful remnant of the Jewish people, a kind of small leftover survivors of a disaster. See, in, in 605 BC, the massive, irresistible Babylonian army entirely defeated God's ancient people, Israel. They crushed Jerusalem, that was the capital city for God's people. They burned the temple down to the ground, which was the center of Israel's worship. And they carried everyone except the poorest people in a series of waves out of the land of Israel and away into exile. So it's written to a people where hope is in short supply, right? Things are a mess. They are down on their luck. They're hurting. What hope can there be? They're defeated. They're humiliated. They're scattered. And yet, some of those who are exiled held on to their faith, even in the face of difficulty, in the face of kind of the, the, the challenge to keep your hope alive. They held on to their way of life as Jewish people, and they held on to their God. And that's who's being spoken to here, the faithful, the righteous, the one who seek God. What's that got to do with us? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, okay? But uh, stick with me. It does actually work. So our first call then is to look back. And it says, look to Abraham, your father. Look to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man. When I blessed him, I made him many. Now, looking back to Abraham, your father, God tells his faithful remnant, these last few people in exile, the, the, the kind of bits left over of Israel. He says, look back to Sarah who gave you birth. Now, Abraham and Sarah weren't their literal father and mother, of course. This was a thousand years earlier still, um, centuries before. But Abraham and Sarah were the founding couple of the Jewish people. Why look back to them? 
Because there you see God take just one couple and make them many. And if you know the story, like the original audience would have known the story, you'd know this is no ordinary multiplication either. It's not like just uh, you know, natural um, growth. Abraham was old, far too old to have babies. Sarah, she was old, far too old to have children. And she was barren, that is, she was unable to have children at all. God's telling his people, well, look back and see what happened there. Look back to my promise keeping, God says. Look back to my blessing that makes the impossible possible, that brings people from the brink, from beyond the brink, back into hope. This starts the journey from just one couple, and a couple past hope, onto a whole nation. So this, this, this tiny remnant that Isaiah is speaking to who survived these waves of war and destruction, scattered and fired at home, why does God point them to a promise like that and his keeping of a promise like that? Well, because of his ability to multiply the few. Because of his ability to make the impossible possible. To give a child where there could be none. God wants them to look out. God is promising once again. He says, I'm going to multiply my people again. Like we looked at a few weeks back, just over the page in Isaiah 54, if you were to do that, you would read this promise of multiplying his people again, spelled out for you. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. That's kind of God's promise to these people. He's like, just like I multiplied Abraham and Sarah when it was impossible into a nation, Well, just like you are just like that. You are like the barren woman who cannot have children. And yet, you're going to have more than anyone else. So Isaiah writes to the remnant to tell them, I've done it before. I can do it again. If you skip down just a verse from where we were reading in Isaiah 50, you can see how as he calls to them to listen to him once more. He says, listen to me, my people, the second listen. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation's on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. So he says, look out. How is this transformation going to happen? How is this return from the brink going to happen? Look out because God is going to act. His instruction goes out. That's like orders for action to begin. And the result is going to be his justice is made visible to the world. His righteousness appears on the scene. His salvation, that is his rescue, comes onto the stage. And then we read, his arm is going to bring justice. That's a bit of an odd sounding phrase um, in English. How does an arm bring justice? Well, the, the arm represents his power represents his strength. You can imagine the the bulging muscles on it. It represents his direct involvement in things rather than just operating on them from the outside, rather than just getting other people to act on his orders. When God says, my arm is going to do something, he means I'm in it. I'm going to be right in the middle of this. Look out, remnant. Here I come. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I am going to take action. Now, the final call he makes to them is to look ahead. He writes to comfort them. He writes to give them hope while they're hopeless and lost, while they suffer and they wait in exile. He wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them that the Lord will have compassion. Here's what he says. He says, the Lord will surely comfort Zion. will look with compassion on all her ruins. He'll make her deserts like Eden. He'll make her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of singing. So he says to the remnant, he says, look ahead. 
Look ahead because there will be joy again. Look ahead because there, there will be gladness again. There'll be a time for thanksgiving. There'll be a cause to rejoice in song. He says, look out for me on that day. I'm going to intervene, so you should wait in hope. That's how verse 5 puts it. It says, wait in hope. But for how long? Well, perhaps you'll know the story. Israel did return from their exile in Babylon back into their own land. Eventually, the Persian Empire overran the Babylonian Empire, as empires tend to follow each other. And their king, the king of the Persians, Cyrus, invited the Israelites to return home to rebuild their temple. And there was joy and gladness when that rebuilding happened. There was thanksgiving and singing. But if you read the story of how that return happened, how that rebuilding actually worked its way out, this is what you read in the, the book of Ezra, and the Bible's telling of that story of return and rebuilding. And the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's the, 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 stem, the temple being rebuilt after its destruction. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple laid, even while many others shouted for joy. See that contrast on top of each other? Although the ruins are being rebuilt, well, those who remember what was there before weep because they knew that doesn't measure up to what's been destroyed. Even in Jesus' day, it's like 400 and some years after that, many Jews were still waiting and hoping for a better fulfillment of these promises. God said he's going to intervene. God said he's going to bring salvation. God says he's going to bring all these things back. Well, where is it? They knew their fragile reality did not measure up to what had been promised. So they needed and held on to this ancient core to keep looking ahead. Okay, lots and lots of ancient Israel, right? What has that got to do with us right after Christmas? What has this possibly got to do with us? Most of this is written to other people, not us. Why did I take us to this weird corner of the Bible just after Christmas? doesn't feel very festive talking about remnants and exiles and destruction and things like that. Well, let me join some dots here, and I want you to see how we can understand this as our story as well. See, even though it's written to ancient Israel, exiled and captive, it's also written to us because we are more like that than you might imagine. How so? Well, think about this. Israel were God's special people, okay, and they lived in his presence. That's his temple in the middle of them. They lived in his presence, and that all came to an end, not just because the Babylonians had better military tactics or Israel's defense spending was too low. That's not why that all came to an end. It came to an end because God did it. That's what the Bible tells us. This exile was God's doing because his people had turned away from him and they had turned away from his ways. This is just a tiny bit earlier in Isaiah. It's because of your sins you were sold, he says, because of your transgressions. Your mother, that's kind of the phrase for the whole people of Israel, was sent away. Because they turned away from God, turned away from his way of living, that's why they were sent away from his presence and into exile. Well, here's the thing. Rewind to the very beginning of the whole story, and the Bible tells us humankind, all of us, lived with God in his presence in the Garden of Eden. It tells us he walked with us. It tells us he talked with us. But when we turned away from God, when we chose to ignore him, when we chose to go our own way, when we thought, that's going to be better, well, the Bible tells us we were sent away. It says we were exiled, just like Israel was. So 
you can call us garden exiles. Like Israel were exiled from the land, we have been exiled from the garden. Think about Israel in captivity under the Babylonians, right? They're under the thumb of the Babylonians, this powerful military empire. That's a picture of how we today live in captivity in our exile. We walked away from God. We thought we were choosing freedom, but what we in fact chose was slavery. We chose to be trapped. The things we chose instead of God, which we thought would free us, just turned out to enslave us instead. They became our masters. They brought us sorrow rather than the joy we hoped for. And just like Israel found themselves exiles, we too, we're exiles. We're sent out of God's presence, sent into captivity, and here we are waiting and hurting. We're oppressed. We're distant from God. And yet, just like God's people Israel, we do not wait without hope. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, that's where we started this time. If we, garden exiles, pursue righteousness, seek the Lord, then this is also God's call to us. He says to us, look back, to us, look out, and to us, look ahead. See, we are told to look back to our father in the faith and our mother in the faith too. We can see the power of God. We can see the power of his blessing. We can see the strength of his promise, how he can make the childless, the old couple, into a family, into a multitude. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Galatians over these past months, you'll have had a chance to think about how even though most of us are not Jewish, most of us are not in a family line of descent from Abraham, the Galatians tells us we can claim a place in Abraham's family by faith. Because he's the father of all of those who have faith in God's promise. So when we have faith in God's promises, we become children of Abraham. So we're told to look back to Abraham, see how his promises filled, how our promises can be fulfilled. We look out because God himself is stepping in to change things. Now, yeah, he stepped in to return Israel from exile in that amazing turnaround with Cyrus and the Persians. But he also steps in personally. And we talked about how he bears his arm. He's getting involved himself. He gets involved himself in returning us from our garden exile. And that, of course, is in Jesus. Salvation is on the way. Now, there's a bit of an oddity in the original Hebrew here. In the first mention of arm, hang on, I've got one more slide. That's this one here. Right, there we go. So, first mention of arm is actually plural in the original language. Second mention is singular. Now, the, our Bible translation doesn't pick that up, and there are reasons for that. Don't worry. But you could read it as saying, my arms will bring justice to the nation. That is, I'm getting personally involved. But then in the next line, he says, the islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. And that's singular. The commentator I found really helpful here, Motir, says that is distinguishing the second arm from God's broader action. It's almost like he's taking a body part and separating it from him. It's both him and, and it's not him are the same. And, and that is because God is going to act through a person. God is going to act through another child of promise, an impossibly born child again. But God is acting directly in it. So think about the angel's words to Mary at Christmas. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, the son of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, was a child of promise. But the true and greater Isaac, the true child of promise, is the child of the Spirit, the summation of Israel's coming. Jesus, look out, world. God himself, his coming. And because of this, through what this baby Jesus will go on to do as a full-grown man, we have to hear the last call from the prophet Isaiah as a call to us as well. And it is a call once more to look ahead. The Lord will surely comfort Zion. Now we can read that as us. He's surely going to comfort us. He's going to look with compassion on the ruins of our world. Do you look around our world and think, this place is a mess, it's ruins. Well, he's going to look with compassion on the ruins. He's going to make deserts like Eden, wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Do you see there the connection back to the garden of Eden, the original time when we lived with God, when we lived in his presence as it should be? God is going to take our garden exile. He's going to fully reverse it. He's going to rebuild the ruins, making the dry and desolate like Eden, like the garden of the Lord, totality of restoration. We come full circle all the way back to how things are meant to be. A return to that original relationship together with God. And there, by the way, is the, the reason to see this passage pointing beyond just the restoration of Israel to something so much greater. We're called to look ahead to the full and final return. A return to God living among his people at last. Only possible through the work of Jesus, his son. God's righteousness personified, God's justice, God's salvation personified, only possible through him suffering in our place. He has all our wrongs laid on him, as we're going to see in Isaiah. If you read on from 51, you get to chapter 53, uh, and it tells us just over the page, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is how God's righteousness, God's salvation is going to come about, a child of promise, restoring us into that original place. So look ahead, the prophet Isaiah calls to us. Still ahead, joy and gladness. Still ahead, thanksgiving and singing. Still ahead from here. Because as the year turns on and Christmas comes and goes, you know our world is still broken. And look at this room, right? How many people are isolating at home? How many are struggling with the conditions that we're facing? Israel's exile saw a, a mix of joy and weeping for their partial return. Now, when they got back into their land, when they rebuilt the temple, it was better. It was progress, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the end. And I think... There's a real place for that same mixture in our world too. Both joy and weeping because there is right now a measure of restoration. Jesus has come. 
Christmas has come. Christ has been born. We were singing about that this morning. Something has fundamentally changed with Jesus entering into the story. But still, we've not reached the ultimate conclusion, the full restoration, the final return from exile. In the closing pages of the Bible, uh, we read this. He will, that is future, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we're called to look ahead to still. This day that will dawn when finally it's no longer a mixture of joy and weeping, a partial resolution, but finally and fully done. A return to Eden. That's what God has ultimately promised us as he calls us to look ahead. He says, dawn will come. Like Ed was speaking to us yesterday about dawn. Now, I know this is a bit complicated. I know this is a bit epic. These are big stories that we're kind of mashing together here. And uh, it's the day after Christmas. Turkey's still having its effects, I'm sure. But I think this is why with Christmas come and gone, with our mix of joy, there is joy, real joy here, and still weeping. We still need to practice this waiting in hope that the passage speaks about. See there at the end of verse 5? The islands will look to me. The islands there represent the ends of the earth, the farthest reaches of the universe. The islands will look to me. Everyone is going to look to God and wait in hope for my arm. We are to look to God and wait in hope for his presence, for Jesus, when he returns once more to fully and finally make things new. So that's my challenge to you this morning is to wait in hope as a new year dawns and this, this isn't the sort of year we hoped it would be. I don't think anyone hoped we would be here in the pandemic on the 26th of December. But don't succumb to despair. Don't even just live in grim resignation. Don't waver in uncertainty. Now weep. Yeah, there is a place for weeping even as we rejoice at Christmas, but choose to wait in hope. So that's my call to you. Uh, As we close out this year, look back, see God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. Look out, God has entered into his world to make things right. Look ahead. Even as we weep and rejoice, know that this day is coming. Now we would often sing in response today. We're gonna take uh, a few seconds just to think uh, about this. Then I'll pray for us. And then we're going to pop up the slider questions and give you a chance to discuss with one another what you think. And then we'll engage um, from the front with a couple of the top questions. So just a few seconds to reflect on this. Now, let me pray. 
Father God, thank you um, that you speak words of encouragement to us and words of hope. Uh, you do this because you know that we need uh, encouragement and hope. Lord, as um, our world struggles with difficult things and you know the pandemic is big in everyone's minds, but we know that's just one thing among many if we were to look. And yet Jesus Christ has been born in Bethlehem. You have uh, begun this restoration. Lord God, help us to um, look back to the shared history of your people and see how you are a faithful God. Lord, help us to um, not just hear these ancient stories as somebody else's story, or as fable or myth, but I hear this as our story. Might we um, see and grant us the faith to believe that you are a promise-keeping God, that you kept your ancient promises, that you can do what is completely impossible, that you deliver from slavery, that you deliver from exile. Oh, Lord, let us look at Christmas to Jesus coming and see how you have laid bear your arm. You've got personally involved. You stepped into um, this story to make things right again. And Lord, I pray you'd help us today to be able to be people who look ahead with hope. And uh, I confess that is hard. Uh, it's easier to wait with grim resignation. It's easier to waver and to doubt. But I pray you would give us the faith to um, look back, uh, look out. And so with faith and with true hope, look ahead, knowing that uh, as we rejoice in the goods that are here in our world and as we weep at the sorrows that are still here in our world, that day will come when you will wipe away every last tear, when sorrow and mourning will truly be no more. Lord God, stir hope in our hearts at Christmas time, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to pause.